Hello, welcome to the Faith Focus Weekly Podcast. I'm Kevin Ragnus, and I'm the Discipleship Director here at Faith Covenant. And today we're doing episode number four in our Discipleship Basics series. I'm really excited about it. Um, in our first episode of this series, Pastor Brad and I had a conversation about what discipleship is. And we kind of talked about how discipleship at Faith Covenant has three main components. The first is walking with God. The next is walking with others. And the third, which we'll cover today, is walking with God's Word. And there's a lot that goes into that. And so we're not going to cover every single aspect of what that means, but we're certainly going to go into quite a bit of it. Um, But there's, as always, more that we could say about that. Before we do that, I just want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to however you're getting this podcast, whether it's on YouTube or any of the audio podcasting platforms. Um, Just make sure you're never missing any of our episodes. Um, We're hoping to develop this into a really great resource that you can use in a lot of different contexts with a lot of different people. So um, as always, if you have comments or questions, things you'd like us to cover, um, just let me know. My email address is in the description below. With that, let's delve right in. So like I said, we're going to be talking about what it means to be in God's Word and walking with God's Word and doing that with other people. To do that, we have to understand a little bit more about what God's Word actually is. We have to understand what the Bible is. And that's not always easy. (laughs) There's a lot to it. It can be kind of complicated sometimes. It's an old document, and it's written in a variety of genres that we don't always understand because it doesn't always have a perfect comparison to genres that we're familiar with today. So with that, I first want to break down a little bit about the writing of the Bible and what it is. So it's technically 66 different books kind of compiled into one resource. Now, Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God but written by man. So it's written by real people, by human beings, and in a lot of cases we have a pretty strong guess as to who the actual biblical writers of each text were. Um, Of course, we don't know for certain about that, but we do believe that it's all God-inspired. So the Bible is, like I said, it's 66 books, but it's kind of broken up into two large chunks. The first is the Old Testament, also sometimes known as the Hebrew Bible, and then the New Testament. So these are kind of a very specific point. So the Old Testament is everything that's kind of pre-Jesus, and the New Testament is Jesus and beyond, in essence. So with the Old uh, Old Testament, I kind of want to break that down into its individual sections as well. So first we have what is often called the Torah, in Hebrew, or the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes also called the Pentateuch. You may hear any of those uh, titles when referring to the first five books. And so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what's included in these five books are the very beginning of creation. So we have the Christian creation story that you hear with Adam and Eve, and the serpent in the garden, the fall of man. And then you get kind of a historical, chronological progression from that point up until when God kind of selects and chooses his people, the descendants of Abraham, who's a key figure in some of these early texts, and then their journey into Egypt, their enslavement in Egypt, and then being led out of Egypt by Moses, who is a figure that is chosen by God. So a lot of that happens just in Genesis and Exodus, the first two books. And then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy kind of continue the story with Moses and give us details about how God gave the Israelite people God's word. So like the Ten Commandments and other laws that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were expected to follow. And again, these first five books are very much chronological, so it's easy to kind of follow sequentially what's going on at that point. After that, we have a series of sequential, or excuse me, historical books that also are mostly in sequence. So 
The first few books of that are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. And all of these texts unfold chronologically. These texts detail how the Israelites went into the Promised Land, then known as Israel, and how they took it over, how they organized their initial governments, how eventually they chose a king, or they had God choose a king, Saul, and then the, king, uh, the kingship transferred to David, and it follows the establishment of David's kingdom, how it was made even stronger and larger in Solomon's kingdom. Solomon was David's son. But after that, the kingdom of Israel kind of falls into a really challenging place. They fall into a civil war and essentially become two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so that civil war stretches on for a while. There's kind of these two kingdoms. And eventually the northern kingdom of Israel is taken over by Assyria. And then later the kingdom of Judah is taken over by the Babylonians. Now, again, this unfolds chronologically at first, but then when we get into the next couple of books, which are First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, you basically have some of those same stories being told, but from slightly different perspectives, different writers kind of addressing some of the same events. So at this point, we get some overlap in some of the storytelling. After those books, we have what is referred to as the wisdom literature. These are a series of books that contain um, a lot of poetry and a lot of narrative storytelling, but that just expand upon the ideas of God's people and God's word. So those books include Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Now, the bulk of these things, particularly with um, uh, Psalms, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, they were most likely written during the time of David and Solomon, and most, li most likely written by David and Solomon. So it has a very unified, cohesive feel through those texts. And these are, again, just expanding upon God's wisdom. There's a lot of praising God. There's a lot of lament and saying, God, things are broken. I'm struggling. I'm having these feelings. I'm facing this problem. There's a lot of depth throughout this wisdom literature. After those, then we get into what are known as the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Or, oh, I skipped something. Yep, sorry, no, that's correct. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, these are called the major prophets, not because they're more important than the minor prophets that we'll get to in a moment, but mostly because they just have a lot more that is recorded and that is said. So these are kind of longer texts. Isaiah is a fairly long text within the canon of the Bible, as is Jeremiah, as is Ezekiel. And what's happening is that these writers are all writing during that time of that split kingdom that I was talking about earlier with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. During this time, these prophets are calling out what is being said and done in those kingdoms and basically saying, you are not living according to God's word and there will be negative consequences as a result. Israel is going to fall, Judah is going to fall. When they speak prophetically, prophet, um, prophecy in the Bible doesn't always mean telling the future. That's often included. We do see a lot of prophecies, for example, in Isaiah of foretelling Jesus and the birth of Christ and what Christ will do for us. Doesn't give us all the details, but it's definitely giving us those foreshadowings. But the more important function, arguably, of prophecy in the Bible is to say, here's God's word, and here's what's happening right now in our lives, in our culture, in our society, and in our government. Let's compare the two. So prophecy is essentially saying, here's what's happening in the world. Does that fit with God's word? That's why prophets often struggle, because when they say, our current practices are not fitting God's word, that can sometimes make them seem like they are opposing the current people in power. 
it becomes very complicated and these books deal with those tensions. Um, like I said, they're kind of written during those divided kingdoms. Uh, they overlap with one another. Oftentimes these prophets even reference one, one another as many of them are kind of operating at the same time. So then there's the series of minor prophets and it's the same concept as the major prophets. It's just on a smaller scale. So again, these are people that are listening to God's word and reading God's word and saying, this is, we are not matching what God's word is saying and that's gonna have negative consequences for us. So those uh, writers are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So again, they're writing during the same times as the major prophets for the most part, kind of throughout, I mean, there's a kind of a span of time where this happens over, but they're writing during this time of the divided kingdom. Later on, when this, these two kingdoms are divided, um, a lot of the Israelites are deported from the land and sent to Assyria, sent to Babylon, sent to other places over time, many of them do come back, but when they come back to Israel, they're no longer in control of Israel. Eventually, it gets to the point where Rome, the Roman government, is in charge of Israel, and that's when we get to the New Testament. At this point, several hundred years have passed since the prophets had spoken, and there'd been kind of no word from God during that time, and Israel, again, had come under that oppressive government of the Roman government, obviously based in Rome. So that's when Jesus comes on the scene, and that's when we get the Gospels. So this is now the New Testament. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are generally agreed to be the individual writers of those particular books. You might also hear the term synoptic Gospels. This describes Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're very similar. They have a lot of overlapping stories and a lot of overlapping content. So it's generally believed that they use some of the same source material to put together their final formed gospel. The Gospel of John is not included in that because John kind of uh, tells things in a very different way, but all four of them give some unique perspectives on Jesus. All four of them have some overlap but again, each one does portray a little bit of a unique perspective on Jesus. There's unique details. Sometimes things are remembered in a different order of events, but they are all portraying Jesus. Then we get to Acts, the book of Acts, which immediately follows the Gospels. And this is widely believed to be written by Luke, the same writer as the Gospel of Luke. And a lot of people actually put Luke and Acts together as one continuous document because they're written by the same person and uh, to the same person as well. And if you do read them together, you can definitely see the flow and a similar narrative voice going through them. So then Acts details what happens immediately after the death and resurrection of Christ and details how the church got started in its earliest phases. It shows us what many of the disciples were up to after Jesus left. It shows the conversion of Paul, who then became an apostle and became one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. After Acts, then we go into the epistles. And epistles are essentially letters that explain the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. They're all happening kind of at an overlapping time period. Um, so they're not necessarily in a chronological sequence, um, in, except for in the sense that they happen after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're also all mostly written within a few decades of Jesus. So this is very, very soon after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So the first chunk of epistles are known as the Pauline epistles because they're all written by the apostle Paul. So Paul wrote most of these epistles to specific churches in specific locations. So we have the book of Romans written to the Roman church, the first and second Corinthians, which are written to the Corinthian church, a letter to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, Colossians, 
and two letters uh, to the Thessalonian churches. After that, you also have a few uh, epistles that Paul wrote specifically to a few individuals, and these are known as the pastoral epistles because Paul is taking a very pastoral concern for these individuals. Those books are 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. Then we have a small handful of epistles that are written by other writers. So we have James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Jude. Finally, we have apocalyptic literature, which is also uh, known as Revelation. That's the genre that Revelation is. It's apocalyptic li literature. And so this is essentially depicting what Jesus does in restoring the world to its original state and to a new creation. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's likely that a lot of what um, was being written in Revelation is very metaphoric, but it gives us this idea that the coming of Christ when Christ returns is going to be an amazing thing where all things are restored, all things are made new, and we finally get to that place where we feel like we are at home. So, that's a lot of stuff about the Bible, and again, that's a very, very quick nutshell. Um, there's a lot more in-depth resources that you can go into to learn more about that, but I wanted to at least cover that so that we have some of that basic information. So now, what do we do with that? <laughs> Why is God's Word important? What does the Bible say about itself? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, to answer that, I want to go through some Bible passages that detail what it means to be discipling one another and discipling through and with God's Word. So to do that, I want to start with Deuteronomy. If you remember, that's one of the early books in the Torah, in that first five books at the Bible. And in Deuteronomy, Moses at this point is giving a lot of the law and God's initial earliest words to the Israelite people while they're out in the desert waiting to go into the promised land. So in Deuteronomy verses 1 through 6, it says this, Carefully follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey this 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test to you to know what's in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fear him. What's part of what's so great about this passage is that it gives us some of the main purposes of the Bible, of God's Word. We get uh, in verse 3, it says, God gave you manna, but you learn that you don't live on bread alone, but you also live on God's Word. So God's Word is, in part, provision for us. It is something that helps to sustain us in our daily lives. That's a major, major purpose. We also see that um, part of the point of God's Word is to hold us accountable, to give us guardrails in our life so that we can better learn to love each other and love God. The Bible helps us to do that by teaching us how we're supposed to respond to one another and how we're supposed to treat one another. I also want to mention that how well we obey God's Word is not how we're measured. Our salvation is based on our belief and faith in Jesus Christ. But by loving 
or delving into the Word is a way of loving God because it's spending time in God's Word with the things that God said to us. So that is part of what is so important about getting into God's Word. Then I'm going to go ahead to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is probably the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, it's also absolutely the longest psalm. I think there's something like 176 verses in Psalm 119. So it's a lot that's there. And it actually follows the structure of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a whole lot of symbolism with that that we won't go into today, but it is interesting. So I'm gonna read just a couple of pieces of Psalm 119. It's essentially a long love letter to God's word and describing how amazing it is to walk with God's word, to have it in your heart, and to love and obey God's word. So again, reading from Psalm 119, first looking at verses one through eight. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong and they walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. So some of the things that I see in here that I just am really interested by and that I really love is that following God's word brings us joy. God's word isn't something that just, you know, is a bunch of rules that keep us tamped down from having ever, ever, from ever having any fun. God's word is how we live life to the fullest because when we live within those bounds, respecting God and respecting other people, then we don't have to worry about anything beyond those bounds and we can just live fully, freely, and joyfully within that. It says here, I would not be ashamed if I kept all your commands. I think a lot of us at different times do feel shame and God doesn't want that from us. God wants us to live happy, full lives, living without shame by living within his word. Later on in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 119, we come across verses 105 through 111, or 112, which I'll read now. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have solemnly sworn to keep your righteous judgments. I am severely afflicted. Lord, give me life according to your word. Lord, please accept my free will offerings of praise and teach me your judgments. My life is constantly in danger, yet I do not forget your instruction. The wicked have set a trap for me, but I have not wandered from your precepts. I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. So right at the beginning of that, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. God gives us word to guide us, to show us what to do. Now, it's not that we can just open the Bible and say, oh, now I have an answer to all of the questions. But when we spend time in God's word, we find ourselves being led by God instead of being led by all the things in the world that might lead us astray, or cause us anxiety, or cause us confusion. I know I've certainly wrestled with that. I'm sure many of you have as well, um, because we live in a really confusing world. There's a lot going on. Just earlier um, yesterday, I've hopped on Facebook and was just overwhelmed by the amount of things, the amount of ways I could just suddenly navigate social interactions with my peers. I had to jump off, right off of Facebook, so I was like, no. But God's word gives us guidance for what to do. It's a light for our feet, a light on our path. Then later in Isaiah 55, again, this is one of the major prophets. Isaiah at this point has been comparing the current conduct of Israel and Judah 
to God's word and has been saying, we are falling short. <laughs> this is a problem. Things are going to go badly in the short term. In the long term, someone is coming that is going to restore all things. So Isaiah is starting to foretell Jesus. But I want to read um, Isaiah 55 and read a couple of chunks. The first chunk I want to read is verses 1 through 3. And it's again talking about God's word and how valuable it is. It reads, Come, everyone who is thirsty, and you without silver. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen, so that you will live. So here in this passage, we have a theme that does become common throughout Scripture. That Scripture is our provision from God. It is like food for our spirits and for our souls. This is a very common theme throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. It's something that Jesus comes to quite a bit, as we'll mention in a few moments. But it's without cost to us. Come, all those who are thirsty, come to the water. Jesus is that living water and that bread of life. Then moving on to verses 6 through 11 of Isaiah 55, 11, this passage talks about our own understanding about God's word. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, and he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's de declaration. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my, wor so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but I will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. So in this passage of verses, we realize that our ways are not God's ways. What we often think about the world around us is not what God thinks about the world around us. That's why it's so important for us to be rooted in Scripture so that we can have God's perception about the world. It also helps us, I think, to have some more grace for ourselves because there are times when we just do not understand why God is saying what he's saying or the way that God is leading us to do things throughout our lives. That's okay. We don't have to understand that fully. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. The more we spend time in Scripture, the more closely they do become aligned. But ultimately, God has far, has far more wisdom than we will ever understand, and that lets us have grace for ourselves when we don't get it. And I love here at the end of this passage, too, that God says that the word that comes from my mouth will not return empty. In other words, God's word is active in the world. God's word is an active presence in all things. God's word never comes back empty. So no matter what, whenever you are spending time in God's word, proclaiming God's word, it's not going to be a waste of effort. It's not going to be a waste of time. That's really encouraging for me because sometimes it can feel like, what am I getting out of this today? Um, or if I'm sharing with someone that's maybe not believing or not understanding, it can be challenging to wonder, am I even being effective? But God's word never returns empty back to God. And that's a very encouraging thing to me. Lately, um, in my personal devotional time in God's word, I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah. And just in the last couple of days here, 
Um, I've seen a couple of really interesting pieces that I realized were perfect for this particular episode in talking about God's Word. The first passage is Jeremiah 36, verses 2 and 3. And at this point, Jeremiah has been prophesying about the ways that Israel and Judah, those divided kingdoms, have been falling short of God's Word. And so, in this passage, in verses 2 and 3 of uh, chapter 36, Jeremiah receives a word from God which says, Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. Perhaps when the house of Judah hears about all the disaster I am planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So basically, God is telling Jeremiah, all these things you've been prophesying about, write them down. It's important because if somebody reads this, somebody may realize the error of their ways and they may repent and then I will forgive them. And some, this passage just blew me away a couple of nights ago because I realized that God is helping us to repent. God is not just telling us, hey, figure it out, work it out on your own, turn back to me. God is helping us do that. God is giving us his word, his active word that never returns to him empty. He is giving that to help us repent. Why? Because God would rather forgive us than destroy us. That's amazing. It'd be so easy for God to just wipe the slate clean and start over and just destroy everything, destroy all of us. But because God loves us and would rather do the hard work of forgiveness, God gives us his word, as happens here in this passage, to help us repent, to help us turn our faces towards God. That, to me, is absolutely amazing. In the very next chapter, Jeremiah 37, this is happening during the reign of King Zedekiah um, of Judah. And so Zedekiah was not a very good king. He was not following God's word. He was worshiping other gods, all sorts of problematic things that we won't get into right now. Um, but the, uh, the first part of it of chapter 37, I'll read here is verses 1 through 10. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, reigned as king in the land of Judah in place of Kaniah, son of Jehoiakim, for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made him king. He and his officers and the people of the land did not obey the words of the Lord that he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Nevertheless, King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, requesting, please pray to the Lord God on our behalf. So there's a lot of names in there, so I'm just going to go back a little bit and just summarize. Zedekiah is king now. He's not following God's word, but he still wants Jeremiah, God's prophet, to pray on behalf of him and the kingdom. Picking up in verse 4, Jeremiah was going about his daily tasks among the people, for he had not yet been put into prison. Pharaoh's army had left Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard the report, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So pause here. The Egyptian army was coming up to help Judah's army, and so the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, when they learned that Pharaoh's army was coming, they went away from Jerusalem to go kind of confront and fight off the Pharaoh's army from Egypt. So that happens. And then verse 6, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. This is what you will say to Judah's king who is sending you to inquire of me. Watch, Pharaoh's army, which has come out to help you, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will then return and fight against the city. They will capture and burn it. This is what the Lord says. Don't deceive yourselves by saying the Chaldeans will leave us for good, for they will not leave. Indeed, 
if you were to strike down the entire Chaldean army that is fighting with you, and there remained among them only the bodily wounded, or the badly wounded men, each in his tent, they would get up and burn this city. <laughs> so Jeremiah is not mincing words here. He's saying that no matter what, the Egyptians are going back, and no matter how badly you injure the Chaldeans, they're still going to burn this city to the ground. Now, as you can imagine, this does not go well <laughs> with King Zedekiah, because King Zedekiah wanted something more favorable from God. And so they basically threw Jeremiah in prison for a little while um, because they were basically calling him a defector and saying that he was on the side of the Chaldean army that was surrounding Jerusalem. So then later in verse 17, it says, King Zedekiah later sent for Jeremiah and received him and in his house privately asked him, is there a word from the Lord? There is, Jeremiah responded. He continued, you will be handed over to the king of Babylon. And I just kind of cracked up when I read that because King Zedekiah asked him and says, is there a word from the Lord? There already was a word from the Lord. Jeremiah already gave it to him and said, this is what's going to happen Jerusalem. But Zedekiah did not like that word. So he asked for another word in essence saying, you better tell me something good because I'm real upset with the thing you said last time. But Jeremiah, being faithful to God, says God's word and says, no, you will be handed over to the king of Babylon, like I said earlier. And this just kind of made me laugh because it shows the tension of how oftentimes we want to change God's word to fit our circumstances instead of changing ourselves to fit God's word. It's a really difficult tension that we all struggle with. We all want to kind of redefine God's word so that it says what we want it to say, but God's word does not change. We need to change to better seek after God's word and better reflect God's word. So there's a lot of other things that is said about God's word in the Old Testament, but we're going to go ahead and jump ahead to the New Testament and explore some of what Jesus said about God's word. So first I want to point us towards Matthew 4 verses 1 through 4. And at this point, Jesus is going out to spend time in the desert, fasting, praying to God, spending time alone with God. And while this is happening, he is approached by Satan, by the devil, in order to be tempted. So again, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that may be familiar because I just read that a little bit earlier. So here in this passage of scripture, Jesus is quoting earlier scripture in order to fight off temptation. So not only is Jesus giving us the example that scripture is important for purposes of fighting temptation, Jesus also is affirming what previous scripture said particularly about man not just living on bread alone. Scripture is part of our daily provision. It's something we need to sustain us in the same way that food and water sustain us. Then moving along to uh, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, it reads this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet, it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. 
So here we see that God's word has to be the foundation of our lives. It doesn't mean that storms won't come, that there won't be challenges. This passage does describe intense challenges. But if our foundation is rooted on God and God's word, then it will stand. Unlike something that you build on sand, which will just wash away and bye-bye, it's gone. <laughs> I heard a song that kind of adapts these words and it became it begins so simply and it says i will not build my life on the passing sands of how i feel inside from one moment to the next and just that idea that there are so many things in our lives that are temporary including our emotions which i'm not saying they're not important but what is actually going to be a firm foundation to stand upon is god's word not the words of the culture, of our government, of anything like that. God's word is the foundation that we can stand firmly upon. Then in Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus simply says, among other things, Heaven and earth pass away, but my words will never pass away. That gives us an idea of the permanence of God's word. And think about this too. God's word has lasted through thousands of years. There's not much that has lasted thousands of years. There's some ruins of some buildings and pottery shards, but like no government has that lasted that long. No culture has lasted that long, just being one unchanged culture. No people have lasted that long, except for Jesus. God's word is one of the only permanent things that we have that we can build a foundation upon. Then we go to John 1, and the very beginning of John 1 is very fascinating. So I'm going to just read um, a bit of John 1, verses 1 through 4, and then after that, 10 through 14. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet that darkness did not overcome it. So here it's saying that God's word has always been there. It existed before Moses or any other person wrote anything down ever. So God's word has been there since the beginning, and that's something that I want to spend my life with, if that's the case. So all things were created through him, and then in him is life. So the idea that um, the word provides life and provision. Then moving to John 1, verses 10 through 14. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory and the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here, this passage is basically saying that that word became flesh in the person of Jesus. So in essence, Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. So when we look at Jesus, we look at God's word and how we are supposed to behave. And now we have more words about Jesus that point us again to God's word. So getting to know the word is getting to know Jesus. Even when we're looking at Old Testament scripture, it's still eventually pointing towards Jesus because it's showing how we got to the point of needing a savior pointing us towards what that Savior will look like, and then giving us that Savior in the Gospels. So that's a portion of John 1. Then John 8, 31 through 32 reads, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is saying that spending time in God's word is a crucial part of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, or if you want to help people 
be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus, then you will help them be in God's Word. And it's important to spend time in God's Word on our own as individuals, but also to do that with other people as well. Furthermore, it's about knowing the truth. When you know the truth, it will set you free. You're free from the concern of having to understand what is going on because you get it. You know because you understand God's Word. So then moving on to Colossians, which is one of the Pauline epistles that Paul wrote, um, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So here it's again just that idea that the word is alive. It's active in the world. It's good for helping us grow in wisdom, um, encouraging each other, holding one another accountable, and those kinds of things. Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13, also written by Paul, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating us as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So here it's kind of telling us that studying the word isn't easy because studying the word will penetrate our hearts and help us see the ways that we have been doing wrong against one another and against God. Now the purpose of that is not so that we live in shame, but so that we turn back towards God and treat God and treat others the way that they are to be treated. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, and this is kind of the last passage of Scripture that we'll look at for today. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I think that this just gives a really good summary of the uh, the role of God's Word in our lives. It's inspired by God. It helps us to learn. It helps us to correct one another. It helps us become better people. And I think that's something that we all want. So that is kind of a very, very, very brief biblical over biblical overview of why it's so important to be working in God's Word and walking in God's Word. Discipleship is not an easy slam dunk thing that you can just accomplish. It's a lifelong process. And God's word is an essential part of that process. Because there's so much imagery in the Bible about the word of God as provision, as God's, uh, as our bread of life, as our water of life, I kind of like to think of it as healthy eating. Healthy eating is not always easy, right? <laughs> it takes effort to go out and find healthy foods, to cook them in healthy and appetizing ways. Um, it's not the most easily available food oftentimes, because oftentimes the cheapest, um, quickest food to provide is not always the healthiest. And so it takes some work to do that. But when we have a healthy diet, when we eat healthy foods, we live healthier lives we're more energized. It's like that with the Bible. It takes work. You've got to spend time with it. But when you do, it gives you spiritual energy. It helps you live a better lifestyle in communion with God and with others. So it's really important to delve into scripture because it's yet another way of showing God that you love God. Not that that's the measure upon which we are judged to go into heaven. It's all about faith in Christ. But if we truly have faith in Christ, we want to express that. And so a way we do that is spending time in God's Word. And also, like I said earlier, God's Word is an act of love to us. Spending time with God's Word is opening up God's Word and God reaches out of the page and embraces us. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So, 
You may be wondering, how do I even do all this? <laughs> Where do I start with God's Word? Maybe you've never read the Bible, maybe you have off and on, or maybe you've only kind of really dealt with the Bible in church context and have only have it read to you. That's okay. There's no one perfect way to start, but I'm just going to give a couple of suggestions. The first is the YouVersion Bible app that's available on um, a lot of platforms, but you can get it on your smartphone with Apple, with Android. And it's a really great app that has the Bible in so many different translations. I don't even know how many, um, but many English translations and also translations in other languages. So if English is maybe not the only language that you're proficient in, or it's actually a different language that you're, um, is your native tongue, like Spanish, um, YouVersion has other language translations as well. So please check into that. YouVersion also has built-in reading plans. So in YouVersion, you can go down, I think it's called plans at the very bottom of the app, and it gives you different reading plans to follow. It'll say, read this passage this day, and it'll give you a little devotional um, passage to read along with some scripture that helps you to just get into the word and make it a part of your daily habits. And then once you're done reading for the day, you can check it off. And then there are reading plans that last for a few days or a few weeks. There is, there's even a read the Bible in a year program or a couple different Bible in a year things to get you to read through the whole Bible. If reading through the whole Bible is something that you've never done, I encourage you to do it. It should take a long time. You don't want to just blast through it quickly because you want to absorb it. Um, but there's a variety of really great reading plans that can take you through the Bible within a year. You can also spread that out and do it over two years. That's fine. Whatever it takes, whatever pace you want to read the Bible at is just fine. If that means you read it really slowly, great. Read it slowly. Take time to really absorb it. Other options, the church office has available devotional resources that are often like booklets that give us some devotional um, thoughts alongside scripture um, that we can read on a daily basis. There's also a variety of different methods that we can use to study the Bible. So you may have heard of SOAP. Um, you may have heard of Discovery Bible Experience. If you don't know what these things are, that's great. Feel free to ask me or ask Pastor Brad or others on staff. There's a lot of different ways that help us to read a passage of scripture, think about it, think about how we apply it to our lives, and then pray about how this can make a difference in us. So we covered a lot of ground today, but it's all very important stuff. God's word is such a key component of discipleship. So it's my hope that you're spending time in God's word on a daily basis. And if you're not, this is an invitation to start today. Again, that can look like anything. There's really very few wrong ways to read the Bible. There are some, but just open the Bible and start reading, if nothing else. Just open it and see what God has for you. So again, I want to thank you for spending time watching or listening to this. Please feel free to share this resource. We want this to be available to anyone and everyone who might find it useful. If you have any comments or questions, please let me know. Again, my email address is in the description. And as always, please let me know if you have other topics that you would like us to cover. I've got a huge list already of episodes that I want to do, um, but I'm always excited to add to that and hear from you what you want to know about discipleship, how we can help you, how we can support you. So thanks again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed day.